Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we are looking at what the US election outcome means for markets and investors. I'm David Thorpe, Project Editor at FT Advisor. The election of Joe Biden as US President led to a mini-market rally, with market participants focusing on the potential for fiscal stimulus and a more pro-market trade policy. Joining me today to discuss what the outcome of the election means for markets are... Keith Ray, Chief Economist at Schroders, Paul O'Connor, Multi-Asset Fund Manager at Janus Henderson, and Stephen Bell, Managing Director of Global Macro and Fund Manager at BMO Global Asset Management. This podcast is sponsored by Schroders. Thank you all for joining me today. Paul, if we start with you, in normal economic times, potential for a trillion dollar stimulus at a time of low interest rates would lead to expectations of higher inflation and a rotation into value stocks. But it, at this time, the market is not necessarily um, moving in that direction. What are your thoughts? Is it value's time to shine? Yes, I think it shows what extraordinary times we're in that we're debating here whether markets will be impressed by a $1 trillion uh, stimulus. But I think it has been a year of quite extraordinary numbers. We saw double-digit declines in GDP in the second quarter. We've seen seven or eight trillion of QE from the central banks uh, through this year. So um, we come to fiscal numbers and suddenly half a trillion to a trillion might not seem um, such a big number. Of course, in normal times, this would be a game changer, but these aren't normal times. And the stimulus is taking place against the backdrop of quite significant contractionary influences coming from the coronavirus. And it's also taking place against the backdrop of what looks like a 1% to 2% of GDP decline in um, fiscal stimulus as some of the emergency uh, stimulus packages that were put in place earlier in the year uh, begin to fall off. So I think if we get a trillion, that should boost GDP by a couple of percent, even allowing for the fiscal cliff. And I think markets would regard that as a mild stimulus. I think if we get something like half a trillion, markets will be quite underwhelmed. I think that will just about offset some of the packages that are rolling off. Um, When I turn to the markets, I think, look, this could help the rotation. And when we look back at how markets have behaved over the last few months, we can see that sensitivity to fiscal policy. You know, in October, when markets began to consider the prospect of a Biden clean sweep. We did see a rotation into value stocks, but I'd note we saw an even bigger rotation into value stocks over the last couple of weeks as we began to see markets focusing on on the, the vaccine and the light at the end of the tunnel. So I'd say, look, if we get a trillion, it'll help the rotation. It'll be mildly growth positive, but it's only one part of the story. And I think it could well be that as we look into 2021, as we look back from 2021, we might find that the bigger driver of market sentiment was actually the developments of the coronavirus rather than anything happening on the fiscal front. Thank you. Keith, um, for as long as I'm still, value fund managers have been telling me value is going to outperform next week. Um, the characteristic that typically helps value outperform is uh, when, when the output gap closes, which comes obviously or partly from fiscal stimulus, inflation picks up, etc. But we had, a, we had a decade of very loose monetary policy and, well, very little inflation and, and therefore value underperformed. Is there a reason to believe that this time it really could be different as we're getting a fiscal stimulus alongside the um, loose monetary policy? We are, we are going to get some fiscal stimulus. And um, 
you know that that would generally help because i think value needs a strong growth environment in order to perform but i think you have to decide you know how much stimulus is actually going to be delivered um and i think clearly with a divided congress it's going to be relatively little compared to previous expectations and i think also the word stimulus in this environment is a little bit of a misnomer because essentially what's happening is you're filling a gap you know it's a kind of a fiscal support package it's a bridge if you like um because of the collapse in demand as a result of covid and yeah i mean the economic data is looking a little bit better the economic data is very skewed towards the goods producing sectors um, and even the retail sales numbers that, that have been coming out are generally focused very much on goods rather than services. So I think there's still uh, an awful lot of stimulus that's needed to, to get the economy going. And I'm not entirely convinced that fiscal policy is, is going to deliver that. But where, where I am more encouraged is on the vaccine, because clearly if you want the service sector to come back, you've got to get over the social distancing you've got to get people interacting again in a more normal way so i think the vaccine is certainly very encouraging for for the value parts of the economy but you know having said all that i think as we go into next year um and as we see growth come through and i think it will i'm relatively optimistic once we get through this difficult period i think as the vaccine comes through we will see growth recover but i still think that this is is quite a difficult environment and i think and one of the reasons for that is because a large part of the value universe is the banking sector and the banking sector needs a much steeper yield curve it's going to start making money again and whilst economic recovery will probably tend to steepen the curve a bit i don't think we're going back to a particularly steep environment um i don't think the fed wants that i think the fed sees rising interest rates as, as a tightening of financial conditions and I think they'll want to keep financial conditions relatively loose. And I think they'll be under political pressure to do so as well because of the very big budget deficit that's being run up. So, you know, near term, I think there's a, there's a bit of optimism and I think it's focused around the vaccine. Um, longer term, I, I don't really see it being sustained. Thank you. Um, Stephen, what, what are your thoughts? Are we, are we headed for, uh, for, for a world that helps those traditional value areas of, of the market or or is it still uh, the right time for investors to huddle in the more uh, safe haven or in inverted commas defensive stocks as they have been in many cases for the past decade? So I think when the virus was on the rampage and monetary policy had done just about everything it could, fiscal policy was our only defence and we were watching closely to see what fiscal policymakers we're going to do, notably the United States. But now we have the vaccine, that's the way out. And actually the fiscal question is just not so great. When it comes to value, uh, you can focus more specifically on the travel and leisure sector. And towards the end of September, when we got very optimistic about a vaccine, we at BMO Global Asset Management, we, we bought that sector for the universal range, for example. And that now up out of 20-30% because the news flow has flowed. We now know, everybody knows that we have a vaccine and the upside from here with good news on the vaccine is really quite limited. In fact, uh, with the good news on the AstraZeneca, the third successive week of good news, that travel and leisure sector hardly moved. And a general case on value, as the other speakers have mentioned, 
we are looking heavily at financials. And since I don't believe there'll be much inflation, we won't get much of higher short rates. Yes, the yield curve will steepen, that'll help. But there's another issue. Borrowers have had huge protection. Uh, many people have, uh, in the UK, you haven't been able to evict people. Many people have hung on with, with loans, loan guarantees. We just don't know how many of those loans will default. That's something we've just got to try and work out in the future. So I still think we might see a struggle in the financials. Uh, and longer term, we still think growth will outfall. Thank you. Um, Stephen, if we, if we stay with you for the next question, the, the conditions that we've all really been, been describing, uh, a, a cyclical uh, economic uh, upturn, uh, potentially loose monetary policy in the US for longer, potentially a stimulus, all of those are, are conditions that might reasonably be expected to lead uh, to dollar weakness. Um, if we get dollar weakness, does that point to equity markets outside of the US perhaps performing better? than the US market, which has really led, led the way for the past decade? I do think there are a more positive background. To your list of positives for the US market, I would add the reduced uncertainty on tariffs. I don't think Biden is going to be lobbing tariffs up. We're not going to wake up in the morning and discover some tweet has suggested tariffs will double somewhere. So that will lead to a better background for multinational companies, for companies outside the US. Um, but I don't think it's quite a dramatic game changer. And from a sectoral point of view, the US has many advantages. It's demonstrated to have had a more flexible economy, even though it's handled the virus in a very bad way. I think most people would agree. Its actual economy has performed better than Europe. And when it comes to other markets, uh, we, like nearly everybody else, like emerging markets, which would go along with a weaker dollar and low inflation. But China, which is, you know, half of China and China linked markets are half of the EM index, depending which one you choose. And they've not really suffered from the virus now. They've recovered already, if you like. So there's not quite as much upside. I think you've got to be a little bit more picky in your emerging market investment. Look for good companies and possibly outside of China. So I don't, we, we don't think there's a massive regional bet to be made at present. Thank you. Keith, um, as, as Stephen mentioned, um, the Chinese economy and Chinese economic data and Chinese companies have, have really led the way out of this, um, out of this uh, crisis uh, to this point, as they did indeed uh, on the way out of the, the global financial crisis. The Chinese economy became the marginal buyer. Um, if we get a weaker US dollar and we get um, emerging market companies being the marginal buyer, does that point away from US equity markets in the year ahead, years ahead? Well, it does to some extent. I mean, a weaker dollar tends to make it um, uh, easier for funding in emerging markets. And, uh, you know, that means that they can have a, a generally a looser monetary policy um, without uh, their currencies falling back. Although it is interesting that within emerging markets, you do have to discriminate quite a lot at the moment between, you know, the, the, the ones that are very well run um, and have kept borrowing under reasonable control and the others that are sort of losing it. Um, and you can see that pretty much coming through the emerging market currencies. But but generally, yes, that that is that is right. And we do we like emerging markets at the moment and we do think the revival in global trade is going to be favourable for them. And we also think commodities might hold up as well. But having said all that, 
I do think there's, there's just one area, just sort of a bit coming back to a sort of value growth story, is that I, I think that the environment between the US and China is still one that's going to mean that the US will want to promote its tech companies uh, and promote them in a way as national champions. I kind of think if the tech war is going to continue, which I think it will under Biden, um, you will want to have your tech companies as strong as possible. So I don't see much in the way of regulation or restraining those companies. So I think that will probably be quite favorable for them in the market. And of course, you know, if you if you want to buy into that sector, you you tend to have to buy into the US. So, you know, this is looking out one to two years, but I think that advantage is just going to get reinforced by the kind of political, geopolitical environment that we're going to get, be in. But near term, yeah, I think Weaker Dollar can help um, because of the, the, the funding story. Um, it also helps to boost global trade as well because a lot of trade is invoiced in dollars. So, you know, it's, it's generally pretty good for the world economy. Thank you. Paul, asset allocator and, and fund manager at Henderson, how, how do you think about these uh, these questions? Anybody else who, who had taken the view over the past decade that the US was, you know, ridiculously expensive, US tech was expensive, go anywhere but the US would probably have lost money. Um, is it going to be the same for, for more years to, to come or, or could there be that rotation uh, away from uh, the US and to America last, if you'll pardon the expression? I think it's conceivable. Um, there is a cycle to everything. And I think the conditions that you touched on earlier of a weaker dollar and strong growth are two sets of conditions that do tend to support the performance of non-US stocks over the US. And I think a lot of this has got to do with the sectoral composition of the markets. If you look at the US equity market, um, it's increasingly concentrated on non-cyclical companies, secular growth, as Stephen touched upon earlier. So it tends to mean when confidence in macro moment, global macro momentum improves, there's more of an uplift in sentiment outside the US because other markets have just got more cyclical type stocks in them, including financials. We could see that over the last two weeks. You know, the big winner on this vaccine rally um, has been Europe. Eurozone stocks, um, UK stocks, they have had the highest beta to it. And partly because they're very, they have been friendless. There's been no money going into them all year. They've performed very poorly. And also just by nature, these tend to be more cyclical. So improvements in macro momentum will tend to lift these sectors. Whereas, of course, the US market has a lot more structural growth and it has performed very well all year. So I, I do feel that the in a way the... Um, the relative performance of international stocks versus US stocks is going to perform in a very similar way to, to value stocks versus growth stocks globally. And I'd say if we do get a weaker dollar and if we do get improving macro momentum, that will tend to argue for, for a bit more of that rotation. Thank you. And um, Keith, just to, I suppose, follow up on one of the points you made in, in a previous answer, which is really around the question of, of trade. If we do have... Um, a more, shall we say, normalised uh, trade um, environment and trade policy coming from the US. Uh, how significant is that for uh, for equity markets around the world? How, how much does that add to global uh, economic growth, for example? Or is it really just a question of uh, what we had before was noise and now we have less noise and the fundamentals don't really change? Um, well, it helps. Uh, a, a better trading environment certainly helps and respect for the multilateral organizations and the rules of trade will, will certainly help and the reduction in tension 
and so on will will also be of assistance and will help growth and so on. But you know, I think we have to remember where we were before COVID that we've moved into an environment where what we would normally call the trade multipliers had fallen back quite considerably. So, you know, for a very long period of time, trade tended to grow faster than global GDP. It was a sort of multiplier effect. And then after the global financial crisis, trade didn't expand as rapidly uh, as global GDP. And then, of course, it was compounded by by the trade wars on top of that. And I think that, you know, just, just thinking about whoever's in power, um, you know, Biden is is not going to really change this a great deal. Uh, he, he may look for more multilateral cooperation or what have you, but it seems that the Democrats are um, as hawkish, not quite as hawkish as the Republicans, but they have become much more hawkish on China. And I think the kind of trading environment that we move into is going to be more regionalized. And I think that there will be countries that align themselves more with the US, probably blocks like uh, Europe, including the UK. And I think there'll be a, a, an Asian bloc that's uh, more aligned with China. And, you know, they, they will, of course, overlap. It won't be a complete um, war between the two, but I think it will be a different environment. So I think the, the challenge for investors will be trying to pick the winners in, in that kind of new environment that we find. So, yeah, you know, it, the, the, the kind of environment we're moving into with Biden is, is a small positive. But I think the bigger challenge is trying to work out, you know, what the overall shape of global trade is going to look like in the future. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, um, on, on this question of, of trade and, and multilateralism, uh, many economists take, take the view that multilateralism, that globalised trading environments uh, should be uh, quite disinflationary and that they were key to the great stabilisation that we had uh, for a number of decades um, pre the global financial crisis. If we do have the sort of environment uh, Keith is talking about, where where there is more regionalised trade, where there is less globalisation, where there is more regulation and less cooperation, does that uh, take away from the sort of trend rate of global GDP growth that we could expect? And does it add inflation, for example? So at the margins, the answer to that is probably yes, but it's very much at the margin. Uh, as Keith has pointed out, globalization in terms of faster world trade growth relative to world GDP growth, that stopped uh, quite a long time ago, years ago. And we haven't seen any increase in inflation, nor do I think we've seen um, uh, real damage to world economic growth, which has been slowing for decades. It was slowing during the great, this is developed markets, been slowing for decades as world trade boomed. So there's something more significant going on there. And that's a, there are many hours can be wasted debating this topic, but it's just a, an observation. I'm sure it won't be wasted if you were part of it, Stephen. But yes, okay. Well, I can certainly waste time on this topic. Um, but the issue uh, about the uh, pause in globalization, down pressure on inflation, it seems to me that our standard model of inflation, which is basically based on the Phillips curve, that's been weak. Phillips curve has been flat. And I think what's happened is that with all this improvement in information technology, not only have we had downward pressure on prices, because whenever you buy anything now, you compare prices. And in the days of uh, one of the things any financial market trader wanted uh, was not to have his clients uh, compare prices. We know that in financial markets, and it's true in the market for everything else. So that's a significant downward pressure on prices, which, which will continue. But also in the labor market, it gives much greater information. 
And that unemployment rate uh, is, in a sense, an information-driven phenomenon, largely. So the firm curve has been shifting downwards and flattening, downwards rather, and that causes a flattening when you join up the dots. So I think that we are in a period where, A, the world economy is much more sensitive when it goes into recession to downward inflation. So if we got inflation, it wouldn't take much of a sacrifice to get out of it. And we are still suffering from the effect of the virus and will do for some time in terms of uh, the economy. And that weakness is putting downward pressure on prices. So I don't see a worry for inflation. As far as the scarring, which might affect long-term growth, I don't see a problem from that either. People have lost their job in this sudden sharp recession, and therefore those who have lost their job, largely in the United States, have been detached from their job for short periods. So we haven't had that, uh, that hysteresis of the capital stock or the equivalent for labor. So I think the ability to get back to work will be actually pretty, pretty impressive. What I'm more concerned about is this concept of certain areas going bankrupt, large sectors which had been, if you like, teaching on the brink, of which large chunks of retail are a good example, actually being pushed off the edge. And that may be a more significant fact. Thank you. Um, Paul, I, I suppose the, uh, the the textbooks that uh, that we all had to sit through, although you guys far more of them than I, um, have said that if you had a protectionist uh, kind of a political environment, that should be to inflation. But then the same textbooks might have said if you had interest rates where they are, that would lead to inflation, and, and it didn't for a, for a decade. Um, it would also have said if you had very low unemployment, which we had for a very long time, that would lead to inflation, and that didn't happen either. As an asset allocator, can you almost get to the point where, where you say, you know, we don't need to worry about about um, significant spikes in inflation now? And well, really, the US election result doesn't change that? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. And I think it highlights what has been one of the sort of broader issues facing any kind of cyclical analysis over the last few years, whether it's in terms of market rotation or, or macroeconomics is that we've had this big collision of structural forces and increasingly weak cyclical forces. So trying to disentangle the two influences has been quite difficult at times. I'd say the big picture, I would agree with both um, previous speakers, is look, in the short term, um, whilst macro momentum re remains weak, it's very hard to see any meaningful risk of inflation. That seems the easiest conclusion. I think if we get a vaccine-led rapid reopening in the second half of next year. We could see um, some bottlenecks. We could see some inflationary pressures in some sectors, but I really struggle to see them becoming a meaningful aggregate problem. And I think that's because there's just still a lot of spare capacity has been created by, by this virus. When you look at projections of growth for the UK and the Eurozone, you can see that this, these economies are not going to get back to normal, not going to get back to where they were before the coronavirus, and probably until 2023. You know, the next couple of years, we might see decent growth numbers, but we're still going to see relatively high unemployment. And I think it's very hard to generate a sustained upswing in inflation against that backdrop. So, you know, we might see a flicker of it next year as macro momentum picks up, but I don't really see a meaningful risk of sustained inflation. Thank you. Paul, if we if we uh, stay with you for the for the next question, really. Um, it's often been, been said that the US equity market in aggregate uh, deserve to trade at a, a little bit of a premium valuation compared to most other equity markets in the world because political risk was seen as being lower in, in the US 
To put it crudely, the worst political outcome was probably not as bad in the US as it might have been in uh, other countries. Um, we've had, uh, shall, shall we say, an unusual uh, number of years in the US uh, political uh, environment. Um, is such a premium on, on equities for political stability still justified in the US? Um, it would be something that would be very hard to get to the bottom of analytically because, you know, such an effect is entangled with a whole lot of other things, you know, in effective interest rates, um, perceptions of a short-term macro momentum, and, um, and of course, the sectoral composition. And I think that makes the comparison of one equity market to another very difficult at the moment, is just the sectoral composition of these markets are very different. And I think one of the striking things with the US is we have about six, I think six stocks account for about 25% of the US market. You know, the big tech and media conglomerates are, are huge. And even if we try and strip them out and adjust for it, we do still find that US equities trade a little bit expensive relative to the rest of the world. But my suspicion is that's not so much about any perception of superior political stability. I'd say it's more about the fact that um, investors have been rewarded for staying in the US, even away from the, the, the tech stocks, because the US has had superior macroeconomic momentum post GFC, you know, for well over 10 years now, US has had better macro momentum. So I think that has been one of the factors that has contributed to the valuation premium. However, when you look into next year, as Stephen said earlier, the US is not doing a great job in terms of controlling the coronavirus relative to other countries. And I think it might well be one of the themes for 2021 that investors do begin, begin to question the sense of US macro exceptionalism. And I think there's a good chance that that will begin to erode some of the valuation premium that has been built up. Thank you. Um, Keith, looking at the at the at the US, there's there's always been a, a, a view, perhaps, that the uh, the adults were in charge, and that couldn't be said about every other market in in the world. Um, are we now in 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 the position where we have to treat um, US politicians as being just as likely to make silly mistakes as as politicians in any other market? And should that reflect in valuations of, of assets? Well, I, I think they always have in the US. I don't think they're that different from anywhere else, to be honest. It's, uh, but you have a system in the US with a lot of checks and balances. So, you know, that kind of constrains some of the, you know, more extreme um, uh, elements in the economy. And, you know, I mean, you could say, well, how does that apply to Trump? And, you know, you could say, well, Trump has got around, you know, a lot of things in Congress by signing executive orders. Um, and so he has, you know, created quite a lot of volatility as, as a result of that. But, you know, remember, he's had policies that have been pretty pro-market because he cut taxes, uh, cut corporation tax significantly and has, has helped the market in that way. So, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that uh, the, the politics comes, comes through in that way. But what does concern me a bit about the US at the moment is actually just the run up in budget deficits and debt. And I know this isn't really very fashionable at the moment, and it's probably not the time to worry about the level of debt and so on. We're more concerned about getting more fiscal stimulus. But, you know, again, just coming back to pre-COVID economies, the US was actually running a big budget deficit, even though the unemployment rate was at 50-year lows. So, you know, that tells you as an economist, an investor, that the um, US is running a structural budget deficit of sort of five or six percent of GDP. So even when we get this recovery coming through, that deficit will remain 
pretty high. And I think there may be a point at which the market might begin to focus on that and say, well, how is that going to be addressed? Because it's all very well having the checks and balances and limiting the power of politicians to do things. But sometimes politicians do need to do things. And, you know, there will be a point, I think, going forward where the US will have to be able to balance the need to improve its infrastructure, which is sort of crumbling, uh, and at the same time be able to reduce its budget deficit, for example. These are difficult choices to make. And you do need to have a pretty strong political system or a good leader, good politicians to, to be able to get you through that. So, you know, I think it's the kind of politicians that you need at a particular time that the market is rewarding. And you know, Trump has been fine for the market. But going forward, you might need something different and you might actually need a stronger uh, leader than what you'd likely to get with a split Congress. Thank you. Um, Stephen, as a, as a macro observer, have, have you ever looked at the US? Is that part of your analysis and said, well, you know, US policymakers are, are, are more likely to do things that are more pro-market or pro-business than the rest of the world, and, and we should factor that into our, um, into our metrics? Or has it always been, as Keith alluded to, politicians are always capable of doing silly things, no matter what we do to stop them? I don't know. I always think the US has an obviously crazy political system where even the local sheriff is elected. The insurance industry can uh, fund the political campaign of their commissioner in most states. It just seems crazy, except um, to look at the results, which is the most successful economy in the world. And um, some of my um, American friends who I've discussed investment with over the years say Europe's a great place to live, a fantastic place to visit and a terrible place to invest. And I think to some extent that reflects the more overt capitalist nature of, uh, of the US economy. Now, we are facing some major global challenges on the ESG front that we're all very aware of and no more so than us at BMO. And maybe that uh, advantage will become a disadvantage. But for the moment, I still see some positives. The big issue for us allocators, as I said earlier, isn't the regional bet. It's whether we want to go more pro-risk, more equities in general, rather than regional bets specifically. And what may, we've been basically bullish for most of the time since the spring. Didn't time it perfectly, but, but not bad. And we are now feeling only modestly bullish, hardly bullish at all. And there are two short-term negatives to my mind. One is everybody's bullish, as I mentioned earlier. But also, this very substantial rally in equities means that we're probably going to have a, a big rebalancing flow out of equities. The estimates put it at over $150 billion. And it was that rebalancing flow in the other direction was one of the key factors that started the equity rally. So whereas everyone's getting quite comfortable at the moment, and the vaccine's great news, I'm a little bit less comfortable about risk in general. And that isn't really an issue that specifically affects the US versus other markets. Thank you. Um, Paul, uh, just as a, I suppose the, the final area to really think about is once we've addressed all of the points we've we've done so far in the podcast, we then look at our US equity allocation. Is is there potential that um, stimulus, low interest rates and the cyclical recovery could lead to US uh, companies that are domestically focused outperforming relative to those uh, tech behemoths that have really led that market uh, over the over the past decade? 
you know, if we have more house building, for example, then U.S. construction banks, etc., would do would do better. Is that is that something that you're thinking about right now? Definitely. I think any stimulus or anything that gives a lift to investor perception of macro momentum could certainly have the scope to push that rotation a little bit further. Uh, I think the starting point is very important here. Um, if you look at the performance numbers, we see the FANG stocks, you know, the, those behemoths of tech and media giants. These stocks are up 80% of the year. And if you look at the regional banks in the US, which I think are a good proxy for domestic cyclicality, they're down 14%. So you've got this huge performance differential that has opened where the markets are rewarding the structural growth and have no confidence at all in cyclical growth. And I see when the markets had a sniff of a fiscal stimulus in October, when they began to focus on the prospect of a Biden clean sweep that we didn't actually get, but that was the mood in the markets in October, we did see quite a rotation back in this direction. So I think the markets showed us that um, they had quite a lot of sensitivity around this axis. And as I mentioned earlier, when we saw the, the vaccine rally of the last couple of weeks has seen a little bit more uh, further move into that direction. I think it could go further. I think what we've seen here is that there is a fair bit of scope for further rotation. I think investor positioning and fund flows have been very much in the other direction this year. Investors have been putting money into secular growth. They've had very little interest in the value and the cyclical stocks. So I do think if we see sustained uplift in macro momentum or sustained good news in the vaccine. I think there's more to go. I don't think that is yet fully priced in. Thank you. Um, Keith, um, this question, I guess, brings together a number of the points that you've all you've all made um, earlier regarding stimulus, regarding uh, trade uh, policy, um, etc. Is, is, is the environment being created for US domestic uh, businesses to outperform relative to the rest of the world, if we do get a more regionalized um, uh, economic environment, for example, if we do get a, a stimulus as well, which is designed to boost the domestic economics, uh, the global? Well, I, I think it, it can help. And I think, um, you know, the small cap stocks are ones that we have, have liked recently more for cyclical reasons, and, and that's worked out well in our portfolio. But, um, you know, longer term, the U.S. economy has tended to become more oligopolistic and, uh, you know, profits have been concentrated amongst bigger and bigger players. So I'm not sure whether that is necessarily going to change. I mean, there was talk about regulation of tech. Uh, had Biden had a clean sweep and that sort of gone out the window now. And uh, I don't think he's going to have time in Congress to, to tackle anything like that. So, uh, and the forces that are driving this um, tendency towards big is better, I don't think are necessarily going to go away, even with a more regional global economy. Um, so I, I don't really see a big structural shift in that direction. And I think the small cap can play a role in portfolios when people are looking for a particular cyclical play at a particular time. But you know, longer term, I'm, I'm sort of would be sticking with those larger cap stocks. And, uh, you know, had it been a, a Democrat sweep, I might have thought differently about that. There would be more regulation and so on. But uh, I, I don't think it's uh, going to go in that direction. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, um, just to, 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 to round it all up, um, how, how do you allocate or, or view US domestically focused businesses? And has anything that's happened in the 
in the in the political world uh, changed all of that? Well, when it when you it looked like there was going to be a Democrat blue wave, if you can remember that far back, you know, certainly a few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, domestically focused stocks would have benefited from this huge infrastructure program that we have been waiting for for years and years and years. Remember all those shovel-ready programs in the global financial crisis? Well, the shovels were ready, but the money never got there. And that would have benefited uh, domestically orientated stocks. Typically, construction and other infrastructure projects benefit domestic companies more. Uh, But it didn't happen. And the prospect of any fiscal action has diminished almost by the day. Um, And it's the strange combination of better economic news means less likelihood of the Republicans cooperating. And unless we get this, uh, unless the Democrats manage to win both these runoff seats in Georgia, which we don't think is very likely, they don't have the ability to push that through. So I think that's a much more even game at the moment. The bigger story on the large cap, small cap thing, in a way, is the growth versus value argument. And, you know, I think the issue there is that we've had this dramatic decline in real interest rates. And even as bond bond yields rallied, as the world economy pulled out of this, began to pull out of this virus-induced recession, the rise in bond yields from very low levels to nearly low has been accompanied by a pickup in break-even inflation. So the the tip shield, for example, is still almost minus one, an incredibly low number. And of course, growth stocks, by definition, earn their money in the future, value get it today. And so when you make that comparison, I think this real interest rate is a critical factor. And it's come off its lows, but it's still very low. You know, we're looking at one and a half percentage points lower than something that was already low. And that feeds back to the fiscal argument, which is if fiscal policy really was pushing up against the limit, then we would see pressure on real interest rates and seeing the opposite. So I can't tell you what the limit is, but it's not here. Thank you. Stephen Bell from BMO Global Asset Management. Thank you for joining us today. Keith Wade, uh, Chief Economist at Schroders. Thank you for your time today on the FT Advisor podcast. And Paul O'Connor, multi-asset investor at Janice Henderson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.